I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 61, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 2, pages 380 to 385. And uh, Carl has a prayer to start with. Our, our people today are Teresa, myself, Mike, Carl. The hell, I'm Napoleon today. Josh. I- and Ron. I got a clergy diagnosed defect. I don't know who I am, and I'm Napoleon. We want to talk about that when I get to Well, we're not talking about all your 16 personalities. We just want to go with the physical person here. All right. Well, I don't know. Okay, we're going to start with this prayer. Oh. Oh, uh, okay. How lovely are the feet of those that bring good news. Our God reigns, our God reigns. Proclaiming news of happiness. Our God reigns, our God reigns. My beloved... Help those in need, and you'll surely be called children of God. For when you do these things for the least of my brethren, you do these things for God himself. Remember that God is all-merciful and all-loving. Seek that you may find. Ask God for the things that are for your good and the good of others. God loves us all. Very nice. Okay, I'll start reading then, and then Teresa will read. Fifth, each parent has a relationship with their eighth son that is unique to him and does not exist with their other children. There is usually only one mama's boy among siblings in any given family. As such, he receives the brunt of his mother's psychopathology with the father and other children consigned to the peripheral edge of family life. Frequently, the child may assume the good little boy role within the family. Yet despite his position of maternal favor, or perhaps because of it, he never quite feels he fits in. He continues to be plagued by feelings of alienation and emotional detachment from his family. That is reflected in the familiar homosexual mantra, I never felt I belonged. Profile of the CBI mother. In the Bieber study, the most distinctive characteristic of the relationship between a homosexual and his mother was the inordinate, close-bonding, intimate CBI bond that existed between them. In many cases, the eighth son replaced the father as the primary love object in his mother's life and becomes the main source of her emotional comfort and support. The dominant voice in the household was that of the CBI mother, usually unfeminine and aggressive and unhappy in her marriage. Her pathological attachment to her eighth son with his incestuous overtones was marked by overprotectiveness, overpossessiveness, and overindulgence. The CBI mother's seductive and sexually stimulating behavior toward her eighth son was masked by overt anti-sexual attitudes and demasculizing tendencies, said Bieber. Homosexual behavior may be a response to this combination of maternal seductiveness on the one hand and maternal sexual restriction on the other, so he reported. In addition to interfering with the normal transmission of a masculine identity between father and son, the CBI mother put a wedge between the H child and his brothers where there were other male siblings. The H son was almost always the mother's favorite. Conversely, he was usually the father's least favorite child. Everyone in the family was aware of this hierarchy of affections. 
According to Bieber, mothers of eight sons in his study did not encourage masculinity of masculine or masculine interests in their homosexual sons as they did in their other sons. The CBI mother also interfered with the normal transmission of masculine identity that young boys received from their peers. She typically viewed her son's boyfriends as rivals for his affection and attempted to short-circuit genuine boyhood friendships, isolate her son from his peers, and prevent him from experiencing his biological maleness appropriately. In each case, the CBI mother undermined her son's confidence in his own masculinity and conversely increased his dependency on her. As the son grew older, the CBI mother extended her gross interference in the life of her son to his heterosexual relations where she continued her castrating influence. Dr. Sando Rado, who co-founded the Psychoanalytic and Psychosomatic Clinic for Training and Research at Columbia University College in 1945, has stated his belief that homosexuality represents a psychopathology, not simply a case of arrested development. He, like Horney and Thompson, rejects Freud's theory of the libido. With regard to homosexuality, Rado has stated that a homosexual adaptation is the result of hidden but incapacitating fears of the opposite sex. Homosexuals do not renounce their need for sexual gratification, he said. Instead, fears and inhibitions associated with heterosexuality are circumvented as the homosexual takes a pathological alternative by transferring his sexual responsivity with pleasure and excitement to a member of the same sex. The well-known American psychiatrist Dr. Harry Stack Sullivan, a contemporary of Rado and a pioneer in interpersonal psychiatry, has stressed the importance of interpersonal relationships in the formation and deformation of a man, including a homosexual male. Sullivan believes that homosexuality is produced from experiences which have erected a barrier to integration with persons of the opposite sex, experiences in which the CBI mother plays an important role in the deforming of her eight son's personality and psyche. Profile of the SDR father. Obviously, the submissive, detached, rejecting SDR father in such an unhappy situation has serious problems. He has a constant rival for his wife's affections in his own son, in his own eighth son. He is not man enough to put an end to his wife's castrating and emasculating moves on his eighth son, or he simply does not care. The Bieber study demonstrated that the relationship of the SDR father with his eighth son was at best ambivalent, at worst un- unremittingly hostile, although not necessarily physically abusive. Masculinity is an achievement, Stoller has repeatedly asserted. According to Wolf and Stoller, gender identity is less a problem for girl children who simply have to follow their feminine mothers to achieve a womanly self-image. The task for boy children is more complex and difficult, Wolf has noted. For a young male, gender identity is an earned acquisition that occurs over a period of time. Boys need to bond with their fathers in order to fulfill their natural masculine strivings, something they, that they cannot learn from their mothers, either by experience or instruction, said Wolf. According to Wolf, boys confused about their gender, gender identity may seek safe haven in an androgynous world like that of Peter Pan. He contends that the androgynous fantasy is a fundamental feature of gay culture and implies not only the narcissistic refusal to identify with a gendered culture, but
but the refusal to identify with human biological reality upon which our gendered society is based. This gender identification is the way we relate to ourselves and others, the central pathway through which we grow to maturity, he said. Fathers need to be available to their sons early in life to give them a masculine identity, affirmed Green. Not only does the presence of the father verify the male young child's phallic body image, but it also serves as a model for masculine identification, he reported. Paternal detachment is always traumatic for a son, said Bieber. If a boy does not get affection from his father, or in case of death or prolonged absence, a surrogate father figure, relative or family friend, he will seek fatherly affection elsewhere, including male sex partners. The Bieber study confirmed that of the two parental errors, that is, the mother who is destructively intimate by means of overprotectiveness and by emotional and sometimes physical seductiveness, and the father who was emotionally detached and sometimes overtly hostile, the father's behavior was determinative. As in all neurotic disorders, prevention is the best cure. A constructive, supportive, warmly related father and precludes the possibility of a homosexual son. He acts as a neutralizing protective agent should the mother make seductive or close bonding attempts, concluded Bieber, the sissy boy and his peers. As important as the role of parental psychopathology is in the development of a neurotic pre-homosexual child, there are other psychiatrists, including Vanden Ardweg, who believe that the each child's peers are equally, if not more, determinative influences in the final disposition of the affected child. Based on his own experiences in the treatment of adult homosexuals, Vanden Ardweg reports that parental factors are preparatory or predisposing, but they are not decisive. The strongest association is not found between homosexuality and father-child and mother-child relationships, but between homosexuality and peer relationships, he says. It is the child's peer group that is the primary factor in the child's self-view as to his masculinity or femininity, contends Vanden Ardwick, because when all is said and done, it is with his same-sex peers that the each child and adolescent compares himself. Green has also noted that peer relationships take on greater significance in the case of father-absent boys who are more dependent on their peers for affirmation than father-present boys, and that orphan boys raised entirely by women tend to be more feminine. Like Vanden Ardwick, Green holds that boys need boyfriends and male buddies, particularly during early adolescence, when they tend to shy away from girls and become emotionally, not sexually, attached to boyfriends. Sullivan has stated that a man is more a product of his relationships with people than his drives, and he has stressed the role of pre-adolescent chumship in healthy psychosexual development. As a rule, however, the aged child tends to be a lone wolf lacking in chumship during the critical adolescent period. Few homosexuals recall ever having even one really close bosom buddy in whom they could confide and depend upon the playground as a dress rehearsal for life. In the sissy boy syndrome, Dr. Richard Green noted that patterns of homosexuality were observable in childhood and adolescent play. He reported that H boys were characteristically more frail, less physically coordinated, and less boyish in their behaviors, and were excessively afraid of physical injury, avoided 
rough play and competitive games. Often they preferred to play house and dolls with girls or simply to isolate themselves from their playmates and peers. Using the data, using data from a large 1981 study on homosexuality by Ellen Bell and his associates, Green concluded that childhood gender nonconformity is more strongly related to adult homosexuality than any other variable in that study. The Bell report indicated that few adult homosexuals who were actually who were interviewed felt that they were very masculine as youngsters and some actually regarded themselves as girls. Many were regarded as sissies by their peers, reported Green. Vanden Ardweg used the term over-domesticated to describe H-boys. He noted that they are typically less manly than their same-sex peers and feel inferior to them. The chief characteristic of a mama's boy, said Vanden Ardweg, is his pseudo-femininity, that is, his old womanish qualities, his oversensitivity and sentimentalism. In such cases, he said, the CBI mother reinforces her eight son's uncharacteristic behavior by rewarding it or seeing it as amusing, even funny. The Bieber study reflected similar findings. On the playing field, said Bieber, the eighth child reflects his pathological dependence on his CBI mother and his feelings of inadequate impotence and self-contempt. He is reluctant to participate in boyhood activities thought to be physically injurious, usually grossly overestimated. His peer group responds with humiliating name-calling and often with physical attack, which timidity tends to invite among children. Thus, he is deprived of important empathic interaction which peer groups provide, said Bieber. It should be noted that the absence of male traits in an H child is more significant than the presence of feminine traits. That is because, as Bieber noted, femininity is not the opposite of masculinity. The opposite of masculinity is non-masculinity. All right. We're starting here on 384. First neurotic, then gay, the homosexual adolescent and self-pity. Do all timid boys who engage in cross-gender play exhibit non-masculine behavior and are rejected by their peers automatically become homosexual? The answer is obviously no. According to Van Den Ardweg, much depends on how the child reacts to these unfortunate vicissitudes of life when he reaches adolescence. Van Den Ardweg works works center on the role that habitual self-pity or self-dramatization plays in the transformation process of a, an H child to an adolescent and homo, homoerotic longings. Although a boy child may suffer from a masculine inferiority complex accompanied by cross-gender interest and behavior, it is not until the child has internalized the self-perception and it has firmly taken root and is accompanied by self-dramatization and homoerotic fantasies that we can begin to speak of homosexuality, said Vanden Ardwig. When the H child enters adolescence, he said he begins to react to his feelings of masculine inferiority and not belonging with and with self-pity. The Dutch psychologist describes self-pity or self-dramatization 
dramatization as the youth's tendency to view himself as the tragic center of the world. His young ego is too fragile and does not understand that this will pass. Gradually, the poor me syndrome becomes the nobody understands me, nobody loves me syndrome. Thus, self-pity that brought comfort and worked like good medicine in the beginning, said Van Den Ardwig, soon becomes a drug that enslaves. Unless there are affectionate and strengthening interventions from the outside, the child's life fixates on self-pity, the emotional life of a neurotic, he said. The child ego remains as the youth gets older but does not grow up. The Peter Pan Complex The poor me complex asphyxiated even though the youth may be unaware of his self-pity addiction and Van Den Ardwig, it is, or said Ann Van said Van Den Ardwig, it is at this point and not before that same-sex attraction comes into play in the life of the adolescent, he said. It is during adolescence that a young man affirms his sexual identity and his sexual impulses are awakened. In early adolescence, boys normally prefer boy friends to girlfriends. It is by connecting with their peers that boys reinforce their gender identity and engage in normal and healthy male bonding. In the case of the young age adolescent, however, whose love needs whose love needs are unmet and whose masculine strivings have been waylaid, this normal desire for close emotional ties with their male peers may become eroticized. He may now turn to his peers or other males to satisfy his cravings for intimacy and belonging. The H adolescent may also be plagued by feelings of guilt and shame that arise from a forbidden sexual attraction to his CBI mother. As his peers begin to take an interest in the opposite sex, he may repress his normal urgings towards heterosexual activity so as not to betray his mother. As Bieber noted in his study, at at this early stage of homosexual development, the young adolescents may form a sexual bond with an older boy or a homosexual male to meet his emotional, not sexual needs, and become fixated at this infantile and immature level of psychosexual development. Sexual Preciousness and Sexual Molestation a noted, as noted in the previous chapter, Homosexuality and the Modern State, in the 19th century, there were a number of prominent psychiatrists, including Dr. Richard von Kraft Ebing, who viewed the practice of solitary masturbation as a precursor of sexual inversion and as a major component of the ideology of homosexuality. Von Kraft Ebing believed that though not every masturbator was a sexual invert, every sexual invert was a habitual masturbator. Contemporary studies on early risk factors associated with homosexual behavior, as well as bio biographical and autobiographical sketches and testimonies of well-known homosexuals, support Graf Ebing's view on this point. Van Den Ardwig has reported that the practice of autoeroticism, the solitary vice in the H child and H adolescence, has the effect of chaining the young person to his immature, self-seeking sexual desires and reinforces his narcissistic impulses. 
Solitary masturbation in particular becomes a form of self-comfort, an infantile security blanket, especially after periods of disappointment, frustration, and anger. Although in the child's mind, self-love is better than no love at all. This ego-centered lust doesn't fill the void. It only deepens it, said Van Den Ardwig. One of the one of the important findings of the Bieber psychoanalytic report was that homosexuals were more often excessively preoccupied with sexuality in childhood in the form of solitary and group masturbation. Bieber reported that early sexual experience of homosexuals differed from heterosexuals, that is, more homosexuals started sexual activity earlier before adolescence and had more sexual contacts during pre-adolescence. Most members of the homosexual group engage in homosexual activity in the form of mutual masturbation with their own peer group, although some had relations with men who were 10 years their senior or older. Many of them reported early homosexual contact before 15 to 16 years of age. Most homosexuals had their first homosexual experience before age 17. In this essay, Development of a Homosexual Orientation, Professor George A. Reekers, Research Director for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, cited a 1984 study by P.H. Vanwick and C.S. Geist on the early masturbatory experiences of adult homosexuals. The latter group reported that they learned of homosexuality by experience, that they learned to masturbate by being masturbated by another male, and that they had homosexual contact by the age of 18. Van Wyck and Geis concluded that based on their data on masturbation and homosexuality, learning experience seems to be an important pathway to later sexual preference. And we're going to end here. Yeah. Okay. Now a few words from Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Of France. Yeah, thank you, ready? thank you, thank okay. you, thank you. He is always ready, born ready. Hey, well, I'm shocked, shocked. Let uh, let me give an an overview of what we're talking about here. From my perception, is that, uh, and then I'm going to go into it. Uh, we're. I'm a layperson, and I'm coming from the from a perspective where we're trying to. Share the voices of the laity. We feel that uh, there is a mediator between God and man, and that's the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church, not any particular individual, uh, because we believe that there's wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, But we believe that this is the third millennium. Our Pope Francis has asked, this is the, the clock has stopped on the laity. Okay, it's the laity's hour to speak, and we're developing our voices. So we're not going to have... uh, uh, we're not going to have m- many degrees like the Virgin Mother. We're not going to have many degrees like Joseph, but they brought and taught Jesus, and they protected Jesus. You'll recall it was Joseph that took the Holy Family, both Mary and into Egypt, to protect him from being destroyed. So uh, you let me know when uh, th- when you wanted to say something, Miss T. I so I'm going to go through the outline so that I lay a skeleton, and then we can hang things on that, I think better that way, uh, 
so that uh, although I'll invite you to interrupt me, it's probably best that you not. <laughs> but you so, know I will. Yeah. So, <laughs> so remember it, what we're talking about there. This is very disgusting. But we're going to ask ourselves, should we listen to what uh, 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 Angles is telling us? Angles is telling us. Uh, should we just disregard that? But remember, it's clergy that pick on the vulnerable. That's what we're dealing with. Yes. They pick on the vulnerable, number one. We're gaining function, number two. These are points of meditation. Uh, and we're sharing with you our and their collective cries of distress and screams of torture. That's what I hear from Randy Engel, the author there, sharing with us what a, uh, her, how her soul was tortured and strengthened that she could even look at these horrible, horrible realities that m many can't look at. So we've got the cries of distress, the screams of torture of those who often at times have clergy diagnosed defects. Now I've got a clergy diagnosed defect and uh, I have I have multiple if if uh, we our friend was here she could tell you more about it. I've got a devil in me. I'm mentally ill. When they say I'm mentally ill, I say, "Well, how many which personality are you talking about?" That's what we talked about Napoleon. The Teresa's got half a brain. She's stupid. What would she know? Uh, you're going to get this. You have to expect this. I'm keeping the microphone away from her a little bit here. <laughs> so, so, so you, you know, so they're going to, and you know what? That's how they treat each other. That's how they exclude clergy. They, this is a learned behavior. They isolate from community. They exclude, meaning they don't let them back in. And then they start a whispers campaign against clergy. They learn that in the seminary, in my opinion, Carl. And that's what I've, I've learned by talking and reading goodbye, good men. Yeah. That's a book about good men have been turned away and the weak, the mediocre, and the fragile ordained. So keep that in mind. So the first thing they do, you're mentally ill. Uh, you got a, you're divisive. What's that mean? Uh, our father divided he uh, heaven and hell. Our father divided the light from the dark, order from chaos. Great that I'm a divider. Uh, so you're, you've got a devil in you. There's several that we go through, several of them. So if you've been diagnosed, clergy diagnosed defect, maybe rejoice in this day and age because the first one you want to ask is father you're the diagnostician are you familiar with anal sex tell me where you stand at are you part of the uh, the homosexual lobby and you're just saying that because you want to turn me away from say reading randy angle that's disgusting yes, you're, you're there to serve are you a wolf in sheep's clothing are you someone who should never have been ordained or lost your divine vocation? Because that's what our Catholic Church teaches us about. There are saints, St. Damien. Who's our favorite saint down in there that complains about governance in South America? Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero. We have Oscar Cruz. We have lots of people who are good saintly people. Uh, the other one, what was the other? We have Rasmini, oh, Rasmini who will yeah. tell you about how to deal with wickedness and corruptness in the church. But you won't hear that from the homosexual lobby. You know, every one of us have homosexuals in our family. None of them ask for the privilege that you homosexual clergy ask. Come on, we would like to get your influence so in our parish we could get masses for Heather. We would like you to come and help us with our homeless and hungry home uh, uh, third sex uh, people, gay, lesbian, or whatever. We get nothing from you, you know. And all, and you know what? I'm developing a sharp elbow. I want to be right up there with you as you ask the bishop for funding. 
We're not going away. So I digress. Let me continue what we're going to talk about. Using your voices. The problem of existence versus the problem of identification. I'm going to come back to that because with that, you'll understand how the uh, before uh, how the medieval mind of 1500s, these St. Teresa, St. John of the Cross, looked at things that has been taken off our map of knowledge. Catholicism, Christianity has a map of knowledge. Uh, and I want to suggest to you in that map of knowledge that you can exclude, that you can be useless in the Catholic Church, and there are things to watch. I'll come back to that. Again, we've talked about clergy diagnosed defects. They're fast to diagnose someone who doesn't belong. It's not in the best interest of the parish that you be here. What about the killing of innocents? The contrary, Bill is not worthy to be in innocent because he's associated with Teresa, who we know is a half half a brain. Did you want to? Well, I I was going to go back on another thought that you you said about um, the diagnosis, you know, of mental illness and how it just for me, um, you know, in one of the meetings I was in, I was told that uh, you know um, that Napoleon. <laughs> well, I actually wasn't going to bring up that meeting. This is another meeting, okay? And it had to do with the gal that the the woman that I was um, advocating for, yeah. and they didn't know that she had mental illness. But I don't by, believe that. But by God, they yeah. know you have mental but illness. Have yeah, and they brought it up in the meeting, and they knew. And I just wonder, how do they know? I mean, and who? You know, I just don't get that. The duplicity in that, well, you know, yeah. it was for their favor. Because they didn't want to do, they didn't self-serving. Self-serving. That's the word. Thank you. Yes. That'll cost you a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me some thinking. It took me a little bit of thinking. Now, uh, so you, Carl, do we bless uh, their sin with our money or not? I just want. Do you want me to pass on you today, or would you like to be rated over the coals? Graded over the coals. Do you want to pass? Do you want to talk? Uh, I'll pass. All right. You look like you're ready for coffee and dinner. We worked him before he was here. So let me continue on. Co-workers of the truth. These are bullet points. I'll come back. Faith tells the truth. We're going to hear from B16, Benedictus 16. Faith tells the truth. Two, men need understanding. That's male, female. We all need understanding. Before we went on the air on the radio station, Carl said, you know, we don't ha- hate them. We, they've done wrong, and, and that's exactly right. Even if your bishop is a devil, we ride for the Carmel brand. We want to convert that devil to a saint. Even if your diocese is a cesspool, that's great. We're from Flint. We're used to drinking sewer water. We're Carmelites. We're like pigs in mud. We're not going to leave the diocese. We're going to convert it and clean it up. That may mean putting people in prison. That may mean a lot of other things that that uh, you might find enjoyable, okay? Bringing people to justice. Let's continue. St. Albert the Great is going to tell us about how important common sense is, uh, about Christ who has placed him over you, about your bishop. Well, Christ has placed him over you, great, you'll know it. But it may not be someone. We get that from St. Damien and St. Rosmini. Some of these men achieved their their uh, vocation by uh, uh, bad means. They lied. They were evil. They Just like in a marriage, if you don't have the intent, you were not married. So when Christ has placed him over you, that's legitimacy. What we have now is corruption in the church. If these men may never have had a vocation, and you'll know them by their fruits. Jesus tells us that. And from a, a, a dead tree, the fruit is evil. And that's what we're seeing. Tons and tons of uh, 
wrongness. And a good leader is in service. And even with our bishop, what a wonderful service to let us exist and stand still, bishop. We tell our bishop, take the side of the local clergy. We don't care. Let the clergy tell you, bishop, that we're mentally ill, that Teresa has a half a brain. We're going to get ourselves a fuss bus, F-U-S-S, fuss bus, and we're going to fuss our way to our diocesan center and ask the bishop to pray over so that I get healed, that I go from 52 personalities. I got a I got a brain. You want a brain. And I want a brain. Just like, was it the tin man that didn't have a brain? Scarecrow. Scarecrow had no brain. We want, so now what does that do? That allows your bishop, Bishop, we believe our faith is more robust and the flame is brighter. Take the side. So if somebody's lied to the bishop, you know, when he ordains them, it's like his spiritual son. So we don't split him. We'd like to we'd like to have them all become holy, but it really puts hot coals on your priest on your priest's head. If he's done something mischievous and you say to the bishop, take his side, and you tell the other clergy. Behold the man, your your bishop, who we send letters to weekly. You crucified him. You crucified him by your indifference, by your silence, because the friends of our parish priest, they could be harassing him. They could be hazing him because that's what you do in a military hierarchy. You kind of self-regulate, and they're not doing that. Probably because their pants are down around their ankles. You know, I got a problem with that. Let me continue. Uh, Christ taught and commanded. And he condemned three things Christ did. And this is to Rafi. He Christ taught, but he commanded and he condemned. Yes, he did. And uh, if you find Christ too legalistic, you might have just cut off part of Christ, part of his leg or whatever. You don't have all of Jesus Christ. The commands of the church, because Christ gave us a church. Commands of church, the works of mercy. We're going to go into that. All right, let's take our deeper dive. Are you ready? All right. Problem of existence versus the problem of identification. At the time of, and I just picked this, I could have picked it any time, but the 1500s, the time of Teresa, we ride for the Carmel brand. The time of Teresa and St. John the Cross, this was on everybody's intellectual map. Remember, they haven't been to the moon yet, but intellectually they mapped the moon. So at this time, philosophically, let's, I don't like to say philosophically, the way they thought, there were levels of being. There were levels of being that they could observe. So the first level was matter. The second level was uh, plant life. The third level was consciousness. The fourth level was something more than consciousness. Consciousness was animal life. There was the life of man, which was more than consciousness. And there was something that had perfection, but between perfection and man, they called that the angelic world. We're going to exclude from our conversation the angels and God for this minute, and we're going to take you back down. Remember what I said, because this is the problem of existence. You stop people in the market, the poorest peasant knew that these levels of being existed. What I'm getting at is when these people are out here doing evil and they believe that, hey, I'm okay, you're okay. No, no, no. There are levels of being and you can judge them and you can experience it. Start with a rock, the level of being of a rock. It's matter. You then go to a plant, your favorite plant. A lot of you are into cannabis today. You like That's a plant. It has matter plus life because we can cut it and it will dry and dry and you know there's no life in there. You can experience that. The next level of being is a horse. So you go from matter to life to consciousness. And you see that in a horse. The horse has matter. The horse has life. The horse has consciousness. 
We label it consciousness because it's a state of being. How do we know consciousness exists? Because if you hit the horse in the head, don't kill him, but he goes down on the ground, the difference between that state when he was standing and the state on the ground is what we call consciousness. He's still alive. The heart, you haven't killed him. You know that. A peasant knew that. The next level is something above an animal. It's called a soul. It's called man. Men are above the animals, and they, that's, and they have responsibility, and that's called the soul. That's before the peasants knew that. That is what we call the existence of levels of being. And it was on every priest's mind, every peasant's mind, and they did not take that off the map of knowledge. Today, many people take that off the map of knowledge. One is Descartes. We'll go into that in another lecture. But your clergy know this, and they should know it. And John Paul II knew it was one of the daggers pointed at the heart of the church, the Cartesian revolution, that you only know what you, uh, you, you only know. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to lay a foundation for that because it, it's, it takes too much time. So the problem of existence, we know there's levels of being. Have I proved the levels of being, Teresa, with that little argument? Yes. Yeah. A little louder. Yes. That's $2. Yes. <laughs> Good. Carl, did you get that? Levels of being. Yes. Because here's what clergy, the wolves in sheep's clothing will often do to you to make you vulnerable. Okay. They'll pick on you. Now, remember, the good clergy are happy we're doing this. Don't you think, Therese, they, they like what we're doing? Yes, absolutely. Because they, they can't do. say this. Right. We can. So that's, so, so a lot of times the guys that are bad that we, uh, and bring them to us because Carmel uh, uh, handles devils and we convert those devils uh, that are that are human. The, the, the devils that are bad devils, they'll flee from you if you're in union with God. So remember the problem of existence. Oftentimes, a bad clergy who's been formed is, and particularly if he is weak, mediocre, and fragile, will always use the exception to be the rule, which is not order. It's an ungodly thing. So here's what the clergy will say to you, or somebody will say this to your children at, at college. They'll say, oh, okay, so you think that there's consciousness in the world. Well, tell me, is an, does an amoeba have consciousness? No. Well... Does an amoeba have consciousness? Do you know? Yes. An amoeba? An amoeba. Isn't yes. that just a little plant-like thing? Well, no, an amoeba is a cell. A, it's a cell. Yes. There's an electric... Okay. So watch what happens. That causes a lot of people to argue. Okay. Let me... Ba- is, it, is it the amoeba? Is that... Tell me what it is. Carl, what is an amoeba? I, I don't know how to say... It's a... Grab that. And tell, tell us about that. Amoeba. It's a, uh, a least form of uh, life. Microscopic. Microscopic. Swims in our water. And, and uh, okay. it's called amoeba. Okay, we got a lot yeah. of that in our Flint River water. Yeah, yeah, we, we got a lot of other stuff. In. <laughs> that's what I thought okay. it was. An amoeba. So, so, so an amoeba, that's, my, that's good. Does an amoeba have consciousness is the question. Yeah. Well, some people would say yes, some people would say no, but let me tell you. Don't go there. That's a false argument okay. because they're trying to say, well, there's no levels of being. How can you tell whether an amoeba has consciousness? You want to respond and say, wait a minute. The problem is I'm trying to prove levels of existence. The problem of trying to, is a, that's one, that's a problem of existence. Whether or not the amoeba has consciousness is a problem of identification. I don't have to solve that problem. Right to determine whether or not there's levels of existence. So be careful where they drag you at, Teresa. Okay. You see, that's a different type of problem, and they switch that. Okay. 
particularly with the vulnerable clergy. You know, you're at risk because you have only half a brain, according oh, to your right. clergy diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> now, you got that? I got it. We're going to go to the bishop. He's going to pray that brain back. So, <laughs> first of all, remember that. Don't mix up problems of identification with problems of existence. Because you, there's no answer to that whether an amoeba has consciousness. I mean, it's pretty hard. You got you know that you. A lot of people are going to argue about that. Get drunk at fires at night. Argue and argue and argue. Forget that. I like the one with the horse because if you punch him in the head, that's right. Down, you get it. We prove levels of existence. We don't, and they will. They will argue with you. The devil will come in with a problem of, of. Uh, identification. I don't need to identify whether an amoeba has consciousness to prove levels of existence. What are we getting into? Living for greatness and for goodness. That's what we're getting into. All lives are equal. No, they're not. And oftentimes people in the church will, they can't achieve great results. So they will sabotage your efforts because they can't do good works. They can't achieve them. They're over here in a sinful life and they'll just try to say everything's okay. That's how they dull their consciousness or with liquor or with drugs. They dull their conscience, conscience which bothers them. Now, because there are saints and sinners, there are great souls and there are people who are horrible. So let me continue with our points here. Uh, can't exclude. I'm going to go to the Bishop of... Uh, uh, of uh, a Bishop Roland Minaret, Bishop Roland Minaret of Dijon, France. Do you know what Dijon, France stands for? Mustard. <laughs> Mustard. I tell you, Bishop, there's going to take a lot. I would charge her a little bit for that miracle. We're going to grow you here. What do you guys well, think? Huh? Does oh, anybody know? Don't bring them in. They're they're low in. They need to know. Yeah. yeah. The little flower. Like Where is the little flower from, Teresa? You were named for her, for God's she sakes. from Dijon, France? Oh, there you yes. yeah. well, who well, knew? Look at her eyes. eyes are, look you look like. With mustard. Who yeah. knew? <laughs> eyes like a deer in headlights. Oh. <laughs> You've been a Catholic all your life, Teresa. Where does Lassou come from? Well, I'll tell you what. You, it's probably in the close to Teresa of Lassou is probably. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. For, yeah. Not where she was yeah. born. Was her yeah. Well, you tried to trick me up. That's a problem. That's a problem of identification, not one of existence. So, where did that Dijon come from? Right yeah. Just Poupon. ask the gray poupon. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, here he says. Uh, it's the here you can't argue with this. It's the nature of the church. The unity of the church goes through the person of the priest. The priest can't exclude another priest. He added, "I'd add that he can't exclude another." And that's exactly what our parish priest did: excluded people. Yes, he did. Exclude Heather. Okay. Yes. yes. Excluded Teresa. He's restricted Mike. Excluded Bill. And here you got Bishop Roland of Minareth. You want to watch how they do this now. He's using this for another argument. But remember, that's a. You can't exclude another priest. You can't do that. But you can exclude a lay person. Lay people participate in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Let me. I would read in there. You can't exclude the priesthood of Jesus Christ. There you go. Let me continue. But holding his ground, he added, "I'm doing my job. I have no interest in fostering conflicts." But I, I can't give up on some issues because if I do, I'm useless. I want to suggest to you, here's a bishop that's identifying with uselessness. It is a state of being. We don't think about that as Catholics. Vatican II, known as the Constitution of the Church, identifies and uses the word useless. So these guys who have their pants around their ankles, 
who are involved in lots and lots of sex are, are useless, but even worse than that. But remember, they don't teach that. They've taken the levels of being away. And the most useless are those, the most useful are the saints because they're the most docile to the will of the Father. There are levels of being, even this side of the world. Uh, so, and then he says, uh, Dijon, okay, uh, Here's what Dijon secular media recently accused the Archbishop of failing to breathe life into a diocese in steep decline. What does it change for you, your priest? What, do, what does it change for you that your priests show their unity with us? Watch this. These are things to watch. Is your, is your diocese in steep decline? Are they, is your priest failing to breathe life into the church? Are they excluding? Are they useless? I'll continue. Am I going too fast? Are these concepts? No, no, this I, is a concept. Is you okay, Carl? Would you pay for this? I mean, are you willing to buy dinner or something for us? Is yeah. this going to uh, let me know when uh, you're going to cut me off? Uh, I gotta. I gotta get. I ha- I have to get home by uh, near three o'clock because I got to take my wife to I church. All right. Teresa does too. <laughs> all right. So we're going to, Rome can burn. That's all right. But because we're going to, you're going to have a full belly though. Yeah. By God, we'll have a full belly. Well, you know, uh, I know that uh, I always thought I was a good Catholic. I teach the life and the spirit. And when I, one time uh, I came to a church and the priest was coming towards me and I was going towards him, just, just us two. And I was speaking to him, and uh, he just walked by like I wasn't even there. And uh, he did that with several other people, too. I wonder, I don't think they learned that in a seminary. I don't think they learned that in in the seminary. But did our guy that you're talking about, did he finish it? Did he have the same seminary teaching everybody else did, Carl? I don't believe so. <laughs> His seminary was kind of cut short. He got, he got life credits. He got credit for a seminary. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's exactly right. And what he's talking about, St. Francis labels cold shoulder. He's written about it. St. Fa- uh, Francis. Uh, uh, Pope Francis knows about it. Oh, yeah. He knows about our laity. And th- they filter Francis, but he calls about it cold shoulder. Isn't that wonderful? Why, why don't you... Uh, uh, Want me to elaborate on that? Elaborate. I got to continue here, but I'll tell you what, we will have lunch in the Cold Shoulder Cafe, Catholic <laughs> clergy, Cold Shoulder Cafe, and we are going to be having that gut-punching chipotle sauce, <laughs> Father Egan's gut-punching chipotle sauce. Oh we got a lot to talk about. We'll bring out that Cold Shoulder Cafe <laughs> later on. Co-workers are the truth. Faith tells the truth. Let's see about the And men need understanding. It's so important, Bishop, to allow these voices uh, to, to exist, even if you don't agree with them. Don't put them to death. They'll help. So let's continue here. Faith tells the truth. The outlook of faith is that is the outlook of the truth that may be obscured and trampled upon, but can never perish. This, this is so true. February the 17th, page 63, co-workers of the truth, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, B16, teaches this. It is, I'll read it for you. May I? Yes, you may. It is thoroughly Christian impulse to combat suffering and injustice in the world. 
That's what Teresa and us do. And you just can't, you can't avoid that. It's an impulse. It is a thoroughly Christian impulse to combat suffering and injustice in the world. But to imagine that men can construct a world without them by means of social reform and the desire to do so here and now is an error, a deep misunderstanding of human nature. For suffering does not come into the world solely because of the inequality of possessions and power. He's speaking to you, the uh, clergy lobby that are communists. He's talking to you. Let me continue. And he's talking to you who put, Emily, he's talking to you who put Heather out because you didn't know how to suffer for her. Nor is it just a burden from which men should free themselves. Anyone who wishes to do that must escape into the distorted world of narcotics in order thus to destroy himself and to find himself in conflict with reality. It is only by enduring himself, by freeing himself through suffering from tyranny of egoism that man finds himself, that he finds his truth, his joy, his happiness. He will be all the happier the more ready he is to take upon himself the abyss of existence with all its misery. The measure of one's capacity for happiness depends on the measure of the premiums one has paid on the measure of one's readiness to accept the full passion of being human. The crisis of our age is made very real by the fact that we would like to flee from it. You hear that, Father Steve? The crisis of our age is made very real by the fact that we would like to flee from it. Bishop, do you understand how important it is? You stand still and you just forward our stuff to Steve. You just forward. He doesn't want any contact with him. You bishops out there that are trying to deal with your clergy is like herding cats. You need laity. Let the laity be the ones to bring out some of these things, and you just let them go. And and laity, be very patient, and your bishop will confront, and their conscience will take over. Let me continue. The crisis of our age is made very real by the fact that we would like to flee from it, that people mislead us into thinking that one can be human without overcoming oneself, without the suffering of renunciation and the hardship of self-control, that people mislead us by claiming that there is no need for the difficulty of remaining true to what one has undertaken, and the patient endurance of the tension between what one ought to be and what one actually is. An individual who has been freed from all effort and led into the fool's paradise of his dreams loses what is most essentially himself. There is, in fact, no other way in which one can be saved than by the cross. You hear that, parish, Holy Redeemer? Your cross is in the back. You tell me you got a cross in the front? Well, let me tell you. Let me shrink my donation, you know, by the size. They have shrunk that cross. Let me continue. All offers that promise a less costly way will founder, will prove to be false. The hope of Christianity, the outlook of faith, ultimately rests quite simply on the fact that faith tells the truth. The outlook of faith is the outlook of truth that may be obscured and trampled upon, but can never perish. Do you get that? Father Steve can't handle that. That's why he pushed you out, Teresa. Got rid of Bill. To see you guys reminds him of the Christ he crucified. Yeah. Let me continue. Now, men need more than just grasping and holding. They need understanding. Bishops, think about this. Think about your laity. When they say things to you and you don't understand, just say, well, how would you respond? And ask uh, if they say something. Our bishop, we're saying something about our parish priest. He don't have to know everything. He can just say, uh, he passed it on to the parish priest and say, parish priest, how would you respond? Let me continue. One of the great words in our language is, at the same time, one of the emptiest and most debased, the word love. This is February the 10th, page 55, same work. 
One can hardly speak the word nowadays. It has become so banal, so degraded, and yet no language can actually dispense with such a word. For if we stop speaking about love, we would stop speaking about men. We would also stop speaking about God, about him who holds heaven and earth together. And that's what you were talking about. We have to love. Even though these men are bad devils, we have to love. That doesn't mean our love won't take them to prison, but we don't put them to death. Where there's life, there's hope. We convert them. We dress them in holiness. That's what you were saying, Carl. We don't hate them. In consequence, we find ourselves in a strange situation. We have no choice but to speak of love if we are, to be, if we are not to betray God and, and man. But it is almost impossible to do so because our language has already betrayed love so often. In such a situation, our help must come from, with, from without. God speaks to us of love. Holy Scripture, which is God's word, casts in human words, raises the word, as it were, out of the dust, purifies it, and restores it to us purified. The love, the love that God has for us when he spoke in, in that Holy Scripture. Not Raffi, they're not just talking about the New Testament. I love that, the charismatics. Well, that's just the New Testament. No, he's talking about Holy Scripture that come from the Holy Spirit. Our Father, in the beginning, spoke love, a one word, truth, to chaos and brought order. Yes. Truth to darkness and brought life. Let's continue. Scripture makes it shine again by placing it at the source of its luminosity. Truth shines, guys, Bishop, on, on Archbishop Eli. What happened there? He was indifferent to his sons Phineas and Hopney. Phineas and Hopney were having fornicating. They were grabbing the. They were stealing from the from the tribes, from the people, having sex with them. And they lost God at the top. They took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with the uh, pagans and they lost God. How often do you, Bishop, teach about loss of God at the top? That is Holy Scripture. Scripture makes it truth shine by placing it at the surface of its luminosity. They don't. They hide that truth from us yes. out of their own weakness because they were ordained. They were weak men ordained and they still are weak. They were mediocre men and they are still weak, mediocre. And they were... They were uh, 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 fragile men, and they're still fragile. They can't handle the truth. Again, they I have a saying. I'll bring it out next week. I don't exactly what. They can't do great things, so they don't want you doing them, Therese. Right. Uh, in the mystery of, so the placing it in the source of its luminosity, in the mystery of Jesus Christ. From the cross, the word love recovers its uniqueness. Clergy, think about that as we every week, Assail your bishop, our bishop, with our letters. And behold the man who's now a hanger. We're asking our bishop to be a hanger on the cross. Hanging there because you, clergy, because of your sins. Is that a fair enough way to say it, that, That's fair. That's yes, about it. That's, what, yeah. that's about it. You put him on that cross. Behold the man, clergy, that you crucified. Steve, look at the man. Behold him whom you crucified with your sins of indifference, your cowardice, your selfishness. Men need more than grasping and holding. They need understanding. Do you understand us, Bishop? Those who are, are cries of distress, are screams of torture. Is that a fair question? Well, you know, it comes to me like right away I think of my husband. Um, you know, where was the understanding there? Where was the explanation? Where was the thought of what he was doing with a soul? Thank you. Men need more than grasping and holding. They need understanding, which gives power to their actions and their hands. They also need perceptions, hearing, reasoning that reaches into the bottom of their heart. Perception of Tom, of Heather, 
Tom Heather and our our others that are that are homeless behind the medical building. You will never you won't get their perception unless it's from a Teresa. Right. Yeah. You know the perception that she reflects. And yet, what do you do? You destroy that Teresa, that image, because Teresa has not only the image and perception of Heather, whom we want masses for. And if you're out there, homosexual lobby, and you hear this, why don't you, out of mercy, give us, show us that you still love, give us a mass for Heather. Call Father Steve up at Holy Redeemer Parish and say, I'd like to have a mass for Heather. Yeah. Use your power. Again, which gives power to their actions, their hands. They also need perception, hearing, reason that reaches to the bottom of the heart. And only when understanding remains open to reason, which is greater than it is, can it be genuinely rational and acquire true knowledge. If you do not love, you do not know. That's CF1 John 4, 8. Of course, knowledge is important. Technical expertise is important. But when they are regarded as sufficient in themselves, they become not only empty, but dangerous as well. That's Father uh, the, the, the deacons who brought in that book from GM about, well, let's be teams, who felt that you, what would you know, Therese? Right. You know, they worked real hard on their team building, um, which included the, you know, the staff, and they worked real hard on this team building. And, um but that didn't make room for for um, anything any different, I guess. And or Heather didn't make room make, for Heather. It did not make or room any for Heather or Tom. They, they felt were not good enough, right? And all those people at the community luncheon, yeah. it didn't make room for them. Their education, their ordination, their staff privilege was not good enough. It was not sufficient in themselves. They become you become not they become not only empty but dangerous as well. It's exactly what they did. We're saying to the bishop, they are dangerous. They bring darkness, they bring chaos, they bring death. Mm-hmm. And, and Francis says the same thing. Francis, uh, Saint Fra- uh, Pope Francis about cold shoulder and death. Do you ever talk about that, uh, Pastor? Oh, hell no. And uh, as we experience today, these things can continue to be positive only when they are ordered to that reason that perceives more than physics can prove or can prove more than physics can prove. There you got the, yeah. the, the engineer, huh? Three minutes. Okay. Or technology can accomplish, yet remains true. When such reason is banished, mere understanding becomes a tyranny of r- irrationality. When reason is banished, and oh, what they did, and they don't realize what they've done. And so Jesus says that. Uh, faith tells the truth. We'll have to pick up on that a little bit later. I want to leave you with St. Albert the Great about common sense. Here then are the few points I have written down to provide you with a standard of conduct. The rule of St. Albert to Carmel. We ride for the Carmel band. To live up to. Here are then a few points I have written down to provide you with a standard of conduct to live up to. But our Lord at his second coming will reward anyone who does more than he is obliged to do. See that the bounds of common sense are not exceeded, however, for common sense is the guide to the virtues. Common sense, remember, you don't want to hear these words in Luke uh, 7, 21. About a minute to go. Not everyone that saith unto me, this is our concluding prayer, not everyone who that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have that cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And they then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you work, 
you that work iniquity. Think about that charismatics in the Diocese of Lansing, the iniquity that you do in your silent indifference. I'll conclude the podcast now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.